Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis on the game we all love. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles here to discuss the latest news on the global game as well, of course, as what continues to dominate, of course, the agenda of football all over every country where the game is played. And that, of course, is the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Lots of politics going on, Duncan, which we will discuss Uh, in a a few minutes' time. First of all, however, um, we would like to bring you breaking information that has arrived here at Transfer Nerve Centre. And that regards um, the curious case of scaredy cat Antoine Griezmann, the man who went to Barcelona last season for €120 million, has scored just eight goals in the Liga since being there. It's not exactly lived up to the reputation that he took with him from Atletico Madrid. Um, Obviously, we know he turned down a huge move to Manchester United two seasons ago. And uh, we are told here at the transfer window that Barcelona are subtly and discreetly marketing Griezmann for a move in the summer window. Reasons for this are as follows. A, what we've just said, his performances have not matched the level which Barcelona expected him to do. Uh, Secondly, um, he's not believed to be a particularly good uh, influence in the dressing room. He is egotistical and selfish uh, in some things, we're told, and that's not gone down well with Team Ethic, which has existed for so long at Camp Nou, as well as, of course, uh, the little maestro himself, um, Leo Messi, who disregards him uh, as a valuable teammate. Third, and certainly by no means uh, one of the least significant reasons, Barcelona are in financial trouble. We reported this on the podcast earlier this week, which I'm sure you've all listened to, was uh, leading agent Bernie Mandich. Huge debt to service, huge wage bill they want to cut, very, very poor recruitment compared to performances in the last 18 months to two years. Duncan, this does not seem like a massive surprise to me. Griezmann is not, doesn't become a bad player overnight. He definitely is saleable. But what would you say his price tag would be given the money he was sold to Barcelona for? And, of course, the uncertainty and current climate that we see economically in football. Is there a bargain to be had? if you can get Griezmann playing? Look, I, I think all bets are off in terms of prices of footballers. Um, you know, I, I Bernie Mandich explained to us on uh, the last podcast, there are so many um, unknowables in the coming market um, and there's so many changes to the framework we've been working in in terms of massively reduced revenue for clubs, not just from not playing games, but you're now seeing... Uh, major broadcasters such as BN and Canal Plus in France stopping their payments um, to the French League uh, for uh, the the right to televise games indefinitely. 
Um, and I, I think we're going to see this almost certainly across the board in European football. Each of the big leagues, which is dependent on broadcast revenue for the majority of their income, are going to have to come to solutions with their broadcast partners um, to try and retain as much of the revenue as they can. And that, that might involve sacrificing future revenue. But that, that cash is going out of the game. You've got a number of players who will be free agents, very talented players will be free agents because their clubs can no longer afford to retain them. You'll have clubs who, as we told you on the podcast um, a couple of weeks ago now, you've got clubs in the championship um, actively petitioning to have the transfer window opened immediately so they can sell their assets to get money in to keep themselves afloat. All of these things brings down the, the value of players. I talked to... Um, a major transfer market operator this morning and, and asked him how he feels this will affect the value of players in the coming window. And, and he said he'd done a calculation for the big five leagues and he thinks it's going to be 20 to 25% off valuations of all players. And, and he expects that to take three years to um, resolve itself. Um, and I think it can be a lot more in cases like Griezmann. Once you've got an individual who was signed on a, a high transfer fee, um, 120 million euros, albeit Atletico wanted 200 million euros because of the way the, uh, the release clause was applied on very large wages. Um, Griezmann's turn, turned 29 last month. So he's at that point in the career where of your valuation and your worth on the transfer market goes down inevitably. Um, you have to find another club who's prepared to take him. Everyone knows that Barcelona are in difficult financial situations. Everyone knows that uh, the dressing room didn't want Griezmann to come in the first place and want him out now, and that Barcelona are looking for a replacement. So all of those things reduces value, and, and that's why I think you will see a club like Manchester United who have tried to sign Griezmann in the past and, and value him as a player, um, value him as a commercial asset as well. That was part of their thinking in, in trying to sign him two years ago. To say, well, let's just have a look at this and see if there is a, a serious bargain to be had. Um, you know, How far can Barcelona be pushed? Who else is interested in taking the player? Um, how much competition is there in the market? Um, and maybe we can get someone we were prepared to spend the majority of our transfer budget on two years ago at a fraction of that cost. Um, and uh, and we, if that is the case, perhaps that's a better route to go down than, than the one we'd originally been planning. I, I, I just think everything is so open now in this transfer market because none of the old certainties are in place in terms of who has the power who has um, the, the financial strength as a club um, to be able to, to insist on high transfer fees and who has the, the strength as a club to be able to pay high transfer fees, the ones that have got cash in the bank or um, have more of their um, earnings dependent on commercial revenue. Manchester United are a good example here should be in a stronger position as long as they can keep those um, commercial revenue contracts solid through this period in which they're not able to provide their sponsors with exposure through games. 
Griezmann is potentially one of the most intriguing um, of potential moves this summer uh, based on all the information that, that we've been speaking about. You've got to, I think, include other players like Gareth Bale, uh, James Rodriguez as well at Real Madrid, Felipe Coutinho, who Barca couldn't find a buyer for and ends up loaning him to Bayern Munich who don't want to buy him. These, these are the kind of players who will have to accept pay cuts. Their parent clubs, or if they're on loan, will have to accept cuts in the transfer fee that they were paid for those particular players as well. It's, it is going to be some huge change and overhaul, I think, Duncan. I mean, the one thing, um, given I, I am told that Manchester United are aware of, of Griezmann's situation and are actively in the market, if you like, or certainly um, informed Barcelona that they want to be kept informed going forward because they are looking for a third player to add to the trio, if you like, uh, with starters next season, almost certainly going to be Martial and Rashford. Griezmann could play in the right, he could play in the left, he could play through the centre. So a player who could add a lot to that attacking uh, triumvirate. Um, so United certainly have been kept informed by Barcelona on this. I guess the one thing that both Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, although he wasn't in charge at the time when Alexis Sanchez was signed, and Manchester United will be looking at as, you know, once bitten, twice shy. Um, we don't want to get to the point where we're putting a player on big wages, uh, like we did with Sanchez. We want to find out he doesn't settle, uh, he's not happy, and, you know, we end up with uh, a player who simply doesn't perform to his potential. So my um, advice to Ed Woodward, et cetera, at the moment would be make just have a, a check with Antoine about his dog situation now and uh, ensure that there's, he's got plenty of uh, place to walk his dogs, if indeed he has any, and uh, you'll avoid yourself any further potential upset with regards to uh, the player's uh, well-being, both mentally well, that, and socially. That's, that's one of the problems that uh, Manchester United have, that, that Alexis Sanchez is going to be returning to him, uh, to them, with that very high wage. Um almost zero chance that Inter will retain the player. Um, can they find another club who's prepared to take on Sanchez's wages for a season? That uh, you know that the you would expect that given how much difficulty they had moving him out last summer, it's going to be far harder in the current um, financial economic climate. Um, given that he's failed to perform at Inter, so they, they'll have to take that into consideration. And obviously with Griezmann. Now Griezmann no longer fits into this um, model that, uh, that Ed Woodward is pushing as the solution for Manchester United. So that they have uh, publicly changed their strategy. They want to, they say they want to focus on younger players with um, long term potential. They want to to focus primarily on domestic players. Um, that has beat that strategy has been well received by a lot of their fans and by a lot of the media. So that makes it harder um, for them to go down the, the Griezmann line. But, you know, as, as Bernie Mandich was pointing out earlier this week, the clubs who have the financial resources to take advantage of this market and are the most creative in taking advantage of the opportunities that appear that wouldn't have been there 
um, just a few months ago are the ones who are likely to prosper going down the line. And, and Manchester United are in a good financial position to do that relative to a lot of their other competitors if they get the decisions right and if they can move the players they want moved out um, off their books uh, and, and make room for, for the bargains that are available in the market. Well, he's probably not a bargain, Duncan, but you've certainly kept us abreast of the numerous uh, interests declared in uh, Wolves winger Adama Traore throughout the season. Um, he's a player much in demand, former Barcelona player, of course, as well. I understand you've got some news for us regarding um, Traore's current situation and the possibility of, yet again, the impact of the current situation economically in football and, of course, globally uh, as well in society on what could be one of the transfers of the summer. Yeah, Adama Traore has been targeted by Manchester City, as we, we told you in the podcast some time ago. Manchester City have gone a long way down the line in terms of talking to the players' representatives and um, setting up that deal, finding out how much it would cost, um, looking at the wage structure that would be required, identifying him as a player who they could add to their attacking lineup as a replacement for Leroy Zani. Um, another story we broke in the podcast you know, over a year ago now that, that Zani um, could leave the club and that Bayern Munich were interested in signing him. Interestingly, the new information I have is that Bayern Munich are interested in Adama Traore and have also explored the possibility of signing him from Wolves. Um, I'm also told that Manchester City have basically put that move on hold uh, in the sense that they've said, we cannot take this any further until we know what's happening with football, when it restarts, what our budgets are, and what's happening with um, the Champions League situation. So still interested in the player, but don't cannot progress the deal because they don't know where their squad's going to be um, because of the pandemic. Um, so Bayern are one of the alternatives for Adama. But in this, you have the question of, are Wolves a club that will be prepared to reduce their asking price sufficiently um, to allow a sale to go forward in a, in a contracted market? And we told you on the podcast that, that Wolves Chinese owners thought a fair valuation for Adama was 150 million euros. I think there is zero chance that they will be able to obtain 150 million euros for any player in this transfer coming transfer market. Um, realistically, the, the expectation was probably that they could try and get it to 100 million euros as a fee. Um, the, the, the numbers I, were, I was hearing um, around the deal were that Manchester City were prepared to go to 80 million euros for the player. I don't think any of those are still in play either. Um, and therefore the question becomes, will Wolves go down uh, the, the asking price? Or will they say, well, if the big clubs can't afford to give us what we think is the realistic valuation for the player in what the transfer market has been, then we just retain him and, uh, and we keep him in our squad and we make ourselves more competitive and we're able to say to the player, well, look, we were considering selling you, um, but the numbers are no longer right. So you stay where you are 
uh, and uh, will sell another player instead in this window. And Raul Jimenez is ob- as an obvious candidate there, with um, Wolves being open to selling that player and that player you know, making noises about wanting to to move to a, a higher status club for um, the next part of his career. So again, it's um, everything has changed in the market. Um, and you talk to the people who operate in the market, and and they're you know they're waiting first of all to hear when they're actually allowed to trade players. Um, FIFA haven't made a decision on, on that. There's been discussion amongst FIFA that they keep the window open um, until January, or even that they keep it open for the, the basically the entirety of next season, assuming the season starts at its normal time in August, which is a big assumption, and uh, and leave the market open till March 31st. So we go back to the old model without um, two transfer windows and allow clubs to trade as, as, as and when they felt necessary to deal with the issues of um, when do you restart the season? How many players get injured if you try to condense matches into a short period? How many players get injured if you try and have too many matches because you're trying to run two uh, or a season and a third in the space of one season with a European Championship to come? Um, allow clubs to sell players to make money um, because they need that money to keep themselves afloat. Essentially, everything is up in the air until these decisions are taken. And I think the, the, the really big problem here is there's there's no one actually can know how long the pandemic will last. So that some of the central decisions about do we scrap leagues as they are or do we try and play them out whenever we can play again or do we try and get them all done um, before the start of next season in a, in a condensed fashion playing behind closed doors they can only be ideas because no one can actually know if any of those solutions can actually be put into play or not as things stand Duncan remind me um, I can't remember off the top of my head the price that Wolves paid for Traore from Borough the reason I'm asking is is fairly straightforward. Wolves are actually, I can, I think, and we can see in the position from where they stand right now, to actually be one of the benefactors still in a very difficult circumstance because they did play, they did pay um, relatively cheap prices for most of their star players who have performed so well in the last season, um, in particular. And so whatever money they made above 40, 50 million pounds, which is the probably the more reasonable end of the market in the current circumstance, they'll still make a healthy profit percentage-wise. So I'm just thinking that Wolves actually, regardless of um, the money they might have to write off, the same as everyone else does, um, with regards to potential value of a player, at least they'll still be making a profit. And you've got other clubs who paid a lot of money in transfer fees and wages to players who are, you know, redundant or, you know, are not performing, who will have to try and not just pay the player off to leave, but then take a much lower transfer fee as well. So um, Wolves probably, in terms of uh, one of the mid-table clubs in the Premier League, are in a better position um, than a lot of other clubs. Yeah, they... The, the fee they paid was 18.75 million, 18, yeah, which, yeah. which was a release clause that was included in his deal to go to Middlesbrough. Aston Villa got 20% of that, his former club. Um, 
there was quite a lot of debate over whether he was worth that money at the time. That's the interesting thing. People still felt that uh, Wolves were taking a big gamble on Adama. And you'll remember Nuno talking about how there was a point in his first season at Wolves where he wasn't sure whether it was worth continuing with the player um, because he wasn't doing the right things on on the field at the right time and wasn't making the most of his potential. I, I think with a club like Wolves, it's not... The calculation here isn't, oh, well, we can still make a reasonable profit on the player. I think Wolves, as as you mentioned, are well-placed to come out of this as an even stronger club than they, than they are at present because they have huge financial resources available to them through their owner. And what's been limiting their development is financial fair play rules um, in UEFA and in uh, the Premier League, which has prevented them from as putting as much of that ownership cash into the team as they would like to. So there is the potential here that those financial fair play rules are relaxed. I think a high likelihood that those financial fair play rules are relaxed because it will be essential for the leagues and for UEFA to relax them otherwise um, a large number of their clubs are going to automatically breach because they, they, they lose uh, too much of the revenue and they still have to pay out on players' wages. If they're relaxed, then a club like Wolves suddenly have the opportunity to spend big uh, and, and suddenly have the opportunity to jump ahead of their peers in terms of the amount of money they can put on the field of play. And this is a club that's already shown itself to be a superb operator in the transfer market, very good at picking up bargains, very good at, at bringing in players who, who fit their squad structure, who fit their way of playing. They have a coach who develops the players and gets a lot of the potential out of them rapidly. If they have the ability to spend more than their rivals, which is there's a good chance that, that, that this set of circumstances will allow them to do that. They will also have the ability to do what they've already demonstrated they're, they're good at, which is utilizing the transfer market and seeing where bargains are um, and, and taking advantage of the opportunities that are created by the pandemic. So yeah, they could be one of the beneficiaries whenever Premier League football starts again. News today, Duncan, that uh, Manchester United players have voluntarily um, offered to donate 30% of their salaries to related charities in the Manchester area uh, regarding the the pandemic, etc. This, of course, is uh, somewhat at odds with the PFA's stance with regards to what seems to be an obstinate attitude in terms of uh, players being asked to make uh, a salary deferral or indeed take a a voluntary salary cut in order to, um, again, help the economic model uh, stand up with so many players who are below Premier League standard struggling and being uh, put in. Obviously, non-playing staff are a big um, part of this as well. being furloughed and put on minimum uh, uh, salaries, part paid by government, etc., etc. This seems like a, a smart move by Manchester United and by their players to to first of all take the 
the spotlight away from themselves and trying to back onto the likes of the PFA and the Premier League, who continue to bicker over who should foot some of the bill for the chaos. Um, PFA not exactly sending out the kind of message that um, ordinary people would like to hear, but at the same time, I think a lot of people have sympathy uh, when players are targeted by, say, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, saying that they should be the one of the first to take pay cuts or deferrals because their earnings are so high, when if we have something like over 500 uh, billionaires living in this country, uh, a lot of whom managed not to pay very much tax, who strangely have gone silent and are not contributing at all um, either. It all seems, um, you know, to me, Duncan, like footballs are easy targets in situations like this because people see them as highly paid uh, and uh, rather fettered, uh, uh, protected from the kind of ills and hard uh, lives that other people have to um, endure. Um, however, uh, I think it's more complicated than that, isn't it? Yeah, look, I think it's a very complex situation. Um, I have to say that what the health secretary said, Matt Hancock, um, is very hard to defend given that this is a health secretary who's led um, a massive strategic mistake on, on the part of the government in their handling of the pandemic, who um, still is unable to provide um, the, the tests to frontline health workers and the protective gear to frontline health workers that has been promised for some time. And, um, you know, if there, if there is a person in the country who has um, failed to do his job well in this, these circumstances, then Matt Hancock and his, his superior Boris Johnson have to be very high on that list. I, I think you're right. Premier League footballs are very easy targets. Um, so he said that uh, given the sacrifices people are making, including some of my colleagues in the NHS who have made the ultimate sacrifice of going into work and have caught the disease and have sadly died, I think the last thing, er, the first thing that Premier League footballers can do is make a contribution, take a pay cut and play their part. Um, I think important here is that the Premier League has got itself into a mess over this issue in that they haven't come to a coherent stance. Um, they haven't, they've, they've missed the opportunity to take the lead in the way that Harry Maguire has been put forward as taking the lead for Manchester United um, with a proposal that the, the entire Manchester United first team staff sacrifice 30% of their salary and donate it to Manchester hospitals to, to deal with the pandemic. That kind of way of approaching um, the pandemic would have been one that would have helped the Premier League, I think. However, the priority of some of the owners of clubs and some of the chief executives has been to save money. So we saw Tottenham Hotspur um, using the, the national job retention scheme to furlough 550 non-playing staff 
and have the government pay 80% of their salaries up to £2,500 a month, plus national insurance, plus pension contributions. Um, and that, that announcement coming out on the same day that it was announced that Daniel Levy had been paid £7 million in salary and bonus for the previous financial season, uh, a season in which Tottenham Hotspur had reported record revenues of almost half a billion pounds and record um, uh, profits, uh, basic profits before tax and other deductions of, of around £170 million. Pounds. So a, a terrible look, a very bad decision by Tottenham Hotspur to do that and one that brings criticism on the league as a whole and on the players and puts pressure on the players, as Matt Hancock has done, to sacrifice their salary. I have some sympathy with the PFA's response in that they have said, you know, we're not against the idea of um, deferring pay or taking cuts in pay in principle, but we don't want um, those cuts to come from clubs who have the ability to pay their non-playing staff from their current revenues. Um, why should the players have to be the ones who um, sacrifice their income um, from their short careers to ensure that billionaire owners, I mean, in Tottenham Hotspur's case, the majority owner of the club is a, is a billionaire um, non-domicile who doesn't pay tax in the UK. So the move from Tottenham Hotspur to um, protect the bottom line of the club and therefore protect the value of the club to its owner, Joe Lewis, um, is one that could have come out of Joe Lewis's own business rather than uh, trying to uh, take it from uh, government and taxpayers' money to uh, to subsidise the running of the club. Um, across the board in Europe, this is an issue, and it's an issue for obvious reasons. Um, 60, 70% of revenue on average for, for football clubs goes on players' wages. Um, revenue into the clubs is ceasing to flow because they're not playing games and because broadcasters in countries like France are saying we're not going to pay money anymore. So there has to be a reckoning somehow to deal with uh, the lack of cash coming into the club's books but the cash that's still having to go out on players' wages. In Spain, the solution has been easier because there are, the, the government-mandated scheme allows any business to cut salaries of its staff by 70% um, under government law as long as they need to do so to keep themselves solvent. So in that case, the government isn't subsidizing the wages. The, the government is giving the companies, the clubs, a remit, a mandate to um, unilaterally cut the players' wages, although those Spanish clubs are tending to try and do it through a negotiation process. In France, they have a scheme in which 10% uh, of the salary is paid for players and other employees by the government. 20% is cut from their standard pay and, and the other 70% remains on the books of the employer, the clubs in that case. And clubs in France are, are putting that into effect and then trying to negotiate further um, deductions on salary or deferrals of salary to the players to try 
and uh, and get them through this period. Um, what I'm hearing is that clubs in some countries, and France is one of those, Spain another, are thinking that the overall solution to this is probably going to be that they will have to go to banks or investment funds as a league and uh, borrow the money required to make up the shortfall on uh, revenue until the pandemic is completed. So you take that money from a financial institution, you use that to pay the remainder of salaries that you've negotiated down with the players to get you through um, the difficult period and then you pay interest on that. Uh, and you're, you're essentially um, selling the future rights or some of the future rights of the leagues to financial institutions rather than to broadcasters as a way to get yourself through the problem. Explain to me, if you're a, a club in France, you cannot just get rid of your players because the value of the club is the players. That's where your transfer market value is. That's where the sales down the line are. That's uh, historically where um, the club's got a large amount of the revenue and uh, made themselves powerful in European football. So you can't just get rid of players. You have to find a way to retaining them. That way can be to borrow from financial institutions to get through the difficult period. If you're in one of the minor leagues, say for example, the Swiss league, and you have a poor squad of players who have a very limited transfer value, then a more rational solution uh, from a business perspective might be to just cancel the contracts of the players you have, um, allow them to leave as free agents. And then when football restarts again, you go and sign up new players and build a hopefully a better squad of players um, as free agents with the expectation there'll be lots of them in the market. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what solution the Premier League uh, comes up with for this because the Premier League kind of has an insulation in being the most affluent league in European football. It can afford to go a bit longer before um, this starts to bite, but eventually it will do. And, um, and I think it's got itself into a difficult position by not leading here. Um, it could have done something on a league level, like what Manchester United uh, have done in terms of salary sacrifice. If it had been intelligent, it would have got Premier League footballers across the board to say, we are going to sacrifice 30%, 40%, 50% of our salary while the pandemic goes on. Um, that money will be donated not just to local charities but globally to the fight against coronavirus um, because we are the global league and, and our support comes globally. And, uh, and then they would come out of it with immense goodwill uh, and with their image intact uh, and, uh, and I think with far less of a problem than, than the ones that clubs like Tottenham, Newcastle United, Norwich City and Bournemouth have built for themselves by taking advantage of a, of a government scheme, taxpayer scheme that was never designed to help affluent football clubs. Well, Duncan, it seems that the players um, have stolen a march on their employers, although I am told that it's with their employer's permission and uh, held a video conference meeting uh, of all 20 captains of the Premier League clubs this morning. And the uh, reason for that was to discuss a 
well, what seems to be a Manchester United-like plan which would apply to the Premier League as a whole, whereby every club and its players would make a voluntary donation to the fight against the pandemic and in support of the people who are at the front line doing that. Therefore, taking away the need for an enforced salary deferral or donation. And indeed, the power of the PFA uh, and any um, particular club attempting uh, to change contract contracts for the players or the way in which those contracts are administered. So it will be interesting to see how that pans out, although given Manchester United's uh, pledge to already, which has been approved to donate 30%, you've got to say that that looks like something which um, would be both gratefully uh, received uh, in the wider public arena, as well as, I think, um, it would be very good PR for the players themselves to do it off their own back and not uh, being forced into it by pressure groups uh, or people like Matt Hancock and the government or the PFA or the PL. Um, That will be an interesting one to see if they can agree uh, to a figure which they donate. Yeah, I think think you you, you have to applaud the Manchester United squad here. You have to applaud the players here. You have to applaud Harry Maguire for coming, putting that idea into effect. Um, And I think if you're the Glazers, you would be applauding them too because can you imagine what the reaction would have been if... Uh, Manchester United had taken the Daniel Levy line and the Glazers had had tried to furlough their non-playing staff um, when they own the wealthiest There's time yet, Duncan. There's time yet. (laughs) (laughs) Let's put this in context. And again, I'm not by by any means um, denigrating or being ungrateful for the Manchester United players making this uh, voluntary offer. But it's 30% of one month's wages given what the Glazers have taken out of the club on an annual basis in terms of dividends, etc., etc., it would be nice if the owners matched the players pound for pound or indeed were even more generous and said, we'll double it. Chances of that, Dunk? It's, a, it's an interesting proposal. Um, I, is the idea not with Manchester United players that it'll be 30% every month going forward rather than just for one month? I think from what I've read and heard, it's one month to begin with. It will be reviewed again in another month Okay. as to where we are with the pandemic. But reviewed perhaps with a, 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 you know, a view to increasing it. We don't know. I think that the idea is that we'll see how it impacts and how things uh, progress. Um, but the, you know, everything is open to negotiation as far as I know. But the, the idea that all 20 clubs and players of the clubs uh, will come together and make a similar donation, certainly as a gesture of solidarity, which should be saluted and appreciated. Now, we did ask you for your questions on today's Transfer Window podcast and are very grateful, as always, for you submitting, uh, as usual, very, very interesting uh Eyebrow, head-scratching ones for us, especially, uh, as we said, in these unusual circumstances. Especially, uh, we are indebted to Christopher Berry at ChrisBerry72, who has asked the following, Duncan. People say we must finish the season for, he puts in quotation marks, 
the integrity of the game. But surely, until we put people before football, what integrity does football have left? I think Mark Overmars might agree with Christopher Berry on this one, Duncan. Yeah, we saw UEFA essentially insisting that they decide when leagues, the European leagues, finish or not, and um, sending a letter out after the Belgian uh, professional league had made it clear that they wanted to finish after 29 games, um, not uh, use the playoff system that they usually do to decide the title and access to Europa League and relegation, um, and take the standings as they were as the final standings for the for the season. Um, UEFA then. Uh, in tandem with the European Club Association, um, led by Juventus uh, owner Andre Agnelli and the European Leagues Association, putting a letter around saying that they wanted the Euro- all of the European Leagues to conclude their seasons in a coordinated fashion so they could start the next season together and warning that um, if clubs decided uh, to finish early, that there would be no guarantee um, that the league from which they came would be allowed access to the Champions League and Europa League. Um, they're saying since participation in UEFA club competitions is determined by the sporting result achieved at the end of a full domestic competition, a premature term termination would cast doubts about the fulfilment of such conditions and saying that UEFA reserved the right to assess the entitlement of any club to be entered into the 2020-21 UEFA club competitions, and otherwise, otherwise it was a it was a veiled threat that if um, leagues don't attempt to finish um, as UEFA have asked them to do, then they might be excluded from uh, the most lucrative club, club competitions by UEFA for for failing to follow their advice. Um, next door. To Belgium, you have uh, Ajax um, and their technical director Mark Overmars um, complaining that UEFA were giving this guidance. He he said uh, in an interview with uh, Mark Leeson from Reuters, "We in the Netherlands are not as dependent on television rights income as the leagues in Spain, England, Italy, and Germany are. I think that they have been put under pressure by UEFA to continue playing at whatever cost." I'm comparing the KMVB, which is the Dutch Federation, and UEFA with the sentiments of American President Donald Trump a week ago when he thought the economy was more important than the coronavirus. Hello, there are more than 100 people dying daily in the Netherlands because of the coronavirus. The league is dead. Life is more important. I think that's the, the, the central problem with all of these ideas. Um, and, and strategies that UEFA, Premier League and other leagues are trying to come up with to complete their competitions. It's driven by the fear of losing broadcast revenue. I think Mark Overmars has, has, has hit it on the head with his complaint that they're more concerned about economics than public health in their countries. Um, and through, and, and uh, don't, sorry, don't interrupt, but two things could not be more opposite than integrity and wealth gain or loss. Absolutely. Life. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, Christopher Berry's question is, uh, uh, is correct there. Where is the integrity of football if it puts its economics interest over public health? Um, 
it, we've seen these proposals uh, coming from some Premier League clubs that uh, the Premier League has concluded with a condensed mini tournament with every single player and staff member tested um, for COVID-19 to check that they are uninfected or clear of the disease, put into hotels, in bubbles, um, with officials and uh, whatever media are required to televise the event. Um, games played behind closed doors, which will still need um, me members of the police, members of the medical services to to uh, look after those games. You will still have players getting injured who will then need to put pressure on medical services. Um, just in an attempt to try and get the fixtures played to satisfy um, the, the broadcasters who pay for the league. Uh, the argument being that it's, in, it's the integrity of the competition that it's completed. There is no integrity to a competition where nine of your games are played behind closed doors with no home support. Um, you don't know when this is going to happen. They're talking about July, August. I, I was talking to someone senior in professional football today who thought he we will be lucky to have football played again by January next year. That's what he's his club are calculating and 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 doing their their um their plans on the basis of. And he thinks that January next year it will be behind closed doors. So you you would set up this mini tournament with games played behind closed doors, um, with testing given to to footballers and um, football staff and media when testing is still not even close to um, vaguely widely available in, in a country like the UK, um, just to get the competition finished, um, to try and have a, a fair sporting outcome, as UEFA put it. But is it even a fair sporting outcome? Because teams like Sheffield United and Wolverhampton Wanderers are taken away from their home supports, which have a big advantage when they play matches and have to complete games that will determine Champions League places on, on neutral, soulless um, venues. And we, we, we've watched a few games played behind closed doors. It's not a great spectacle. Um, it's not the same event. I mean, watching those matches reminds me of watching training. Uh, pre-season training and uh, when no supporters are are present it's you know it's interesting enough the technical levels very high but it doesn't have the same edge that a game has on it so the integrity of the competition won't be retained anyway working that way if we go any distance into next season you've got the problem of players contracts what do you do with the the huge number of players who are who have been loaned for the season and are due to go back to their home clubs um, at the end of june and the huge number of players who are out of contract at the end of the season and are due to be free agents at the end of june there's no easy solution to the latter one there will be legal challenges if if um free agents or players who are going to become free agents are forced to stay with their clubs and forced to play in conditions where the risk of injury will be much higher. We had Kevin De Bruyne talking yesterday about really there needs to be a cutoff point when we say the season cannot be played because if, if you try and push too many matches close together um, without a proper preparation period um, before we restart playing, you're going to get injury after injury after injury. So, 
I don't think there is a possible solution here which really retains the integrity of the competition, which is why eventually I think the resolution is going to have to be um, we, we give up on this season and, and we try and get another season going um, when it is possible to play again. And hopefully my friend's prediction that that, that will be January it is wrong and we can get started earlier than that. Um, and, and interestingly, the, although UEFA put that letter out um, kind of threatening the leagues and trying to stop other leagues following Belgium's lead in saying, now it's dead, it's finished, we're not going to play anymore, let's start preparing for the next season. I'm being told that, that, um, that UEFA have, have simultaneously put a message out to clubs that they want the entry list for next season's Champions League and Europa League uh, to be complete on the 3rd of August, i.e. the deadline for completing the leagues is going to have to be the 2nd of August. Completing the leagues or coming up with an um, alternative way of putting clubs into next season's European competitions. Each league might have the ability to decide that off their own back. The Belgians have decided to use the standings after 29 games. It could be that another league says, well, this season wasn't properly completed, so we'll go back and replay this season um, and we will take the entry list from the, the two 2019-20 um, um, Champions League and Europa League campaign and use that entry list again. But there is a deadline that's been set by UEFA, 3rd of August. We want to know which clubs are entered from your leagues to go into our European competition so we can plan for our European competitions for the 2020-21 the season. Well, coincidentally, Duncan, um, a straw poll I took uh, off my own back of Premier League players and some managers um, over the last couple of days with regards to when do you think football will restart. The most optimistic was September, um, but no one thought it would start before then. So that gives you an idea of where the players' heads are at with regards to when they return to some kind of normality um, in this situation. And speaking of that normality, uh, one of our listeners, I am laden, is his handle, but he's at Louis understroke Farcar. He asks, it doesn't seem right to declare the Prem season null and void, but potentially promote two teams from the Championship, no relegation from the Prem, and use current standings for Europe, something you just addressed, Duncan. If this is the case, surely the table stands and should be awarded. It's one solution, um, and that's the solution the Belgians have taken. Uh, table as stands, although they want, uh, I believe, to add um, two teams, two additional teams to their 16-team league next season, the teams that had the chance of, of promotion um, and play with an expanded league. Um, and, and that obviously is another alternative and it's been one that's been proposed in the Premier League, which is you, uh, you give the, the title to Liverpool, um, you give the European places as, uh, as currently stands, although it's difficult because Sheffield United have played a game less and, and should they 
uh, win their game in hand, they would be above Manchester United, they would be in fifth place. And then if Manchester City were to um, have their uh, Champions League ban upheld by the time the next competition starts, Sheffield United would be entitled to a Champions League place. But you you use the, the, the current positions to determine European entry and you allow the two top teams from the Championship to go up and play um, a 22-team Premier League season next season. Again, I think this is a it's a financial, financially driven uh, strategy. Uh, the idea being that those two teams who are uh, in position to go up, Leeds United and West Bromwich Albion, are the ones that stand to lose the most from a decision to declare the season null and void. Therefore, you look after them so they don't challenge you legally. Uh, and you reduce the number of, of clubs who are um, in a position to make a legal challenge against you and hope that you can limit uh, the financial losses um, on on that side. But th- there's, there is no perfect solution. <laughs> That's the problem here. There just well, it's it's important, Duncan, to remember as well, though, that um, the current parachute payment uh, situation with regards to clubs who would have gone down, that money would be freed up because there'd be no relegation. So potentially, the £60 million per club for the first season, that money could be given to the four clubs who didn't make playoffs as a result, or sorry, who didn't get a chance to do playoffs as a result of the opportunity being denied to join the Premier League. Um, It could also be trickle-down money to other clubs in the Championship or League One, League Two. Etc. I mean, there are other solutions available that people are not talking about at the moment because there's so much uncertainty. But I do think we're now at a stage in this particular scenario where we need to start looking at concrete solutions and proposals for what is a very difficult time in order to try and achieve some kind of consensus for how football can move forward. And, uh, I agree with you. I think it is more difficult with the um, huge amount of money sloshing around the Premier League than perhaps it is for others. But the the bottom line remains the same, and that is that uh, f- football clubs obviously want to get back to business and and back to football players want to be back playing as quickly as they can, but without any danger to themselves or fans. And we need. To, to have a situation where there's no pressure on clubs, players, fans to be uh, in any way endangering themselves simply by wanting to watch their uh, team they support play football. So um, if we can avoid any of the above scenarios in terms of putting people's lives in danger, as Mark Overmars very, very uh, articulately points out, then it should be looked at and addressed accordingly rather than just taking pot shots in the dark about, you know, hoping to save money here or there or the clubs hoping that they won't have to lose too much money. Look, I think there's, it is the case that that has been considered, that, um, that you use the parachute money to buy off the clubs who are would be involved in a playoff or, or could have overhauled West Brom and Leeds United and got promoted in the regular season um, that might be appealing to those clubs because it would give them a big financial advantage over their peers 
um, for the next season and a, and a good opportunity to go up. But then <laughs> the other clubs in the league will say, well, well, why should they be given um, tens of millions of pounds starting cash uh, ahead of us? Uh, and that would disadvantage our opportunity to, to operate on on as close to a level playing field as you can get in the championship, which is already distorted by parachute money to begin with. Um, I think the players are are very important here to any closed door scenario, any mini tournament, any you know put put the clubs in in quarantine, um, all the players in camps in quarantine, and and try and play off the the Premier League quickly in that way. You have to get the players to buy into that. And remember. Um, the reason Serie A was the first major league to suspend was because the players basically said, we're not doing this anymore. This is too dangerous. Um, we, you're asking us to go and travel into areas that have been locked down by local governments. Um, and it, it, we are going to end up catching the virus. And we're going to end up spreading the virus. And, and it's a public health danger. And interestingly, in the conversations I've had today talking about that UEFA proposal that um, you carry on playing and we until we tell you, you you can't play anymore. People are saying, well, UEFA have to look at what they did with the Champions League. The UEFA allowed um, the Atletico Madrid Liverpool game to go forward um, when there was a a big outbreak of COVID nineteen in Madrid. And they allowed, I think it was 3,000 Atletico fans to travel to Anfield for that game. And they were pushing Italian clubs from areas which had pandemics to play the second leg and, and, and even the first leg of their Champions League games during this process. As someone put it to me, he said, people died because of those football matches, because UEFA insisted that they would be played. So I think UEFA have a... They have to be careful um, in taking this hard line against the leagues and, and saying that we will determine when you finish. I, I understand why they're trying to get the Champions League to work coherently again and why they're trying to get the Europa League to work coherently again. We talked in the podcast of the challenge that's faced in, in getting all the leagues working simultaneously. But I'm not sure that threatening leagues like the Belgian League and you know, implicitly leagues like the Dutch league, with exclusion from the Champions League and the Europa League, if they don't do what UEFA says, is the right way to go about this. Well, like the thousands of people uh, queuing at your local supermarkets trying to buy Lural, so we have uh, thousands of Transfer Window podcast listeners nervously demanding the return of the donkey. Uh, I hope Luro was at the ready as well in those nervous moments. Um, <laughs> and and therefore, we are nothing but uh, we will be uh, attuned or in tune with your um, demands, people. And today's donkey, uh, I can tell you, well, personally, I was in favour of doing the Jack Grealish Award for bad parking for obvious reasons. Uh, but the um, Jim McLean of the Transfer Window podcast told me I wasn't allowed to, and so uh, Uncle Jim has instead decided that we will at Hancock Award for scapegoating 
everyone and anyone who isn't the person in the mirror or the person who's currently self-isolating somewhere above number 11 Downing Street for the mess they have made of this particular crisis, or certainly in the preparedness of this particular crisis. So uh, it just leaves for me to open the golden envelope. Thanks, we've got a kind of stock of these just for situations like this. Make sure we don't run out. Nomination number one, Duncan, is, my goodness me, must be a record, Jürgen Klopp. Uh, this particular one is for substituting Dejan Lovren uh, in a game where uh, he said nothing to the player about his performance coming off the pitch. Uh, I think we all know which game this is. And then absolutely threw him under several buses. He may even threw him under the Man City bus as well uh, <laughs> in the press conference. Uh, second, uh, and probably close to Klopp for nominations, uh, our old friend Gary Neville, who still hasn't uh, volunteered to come on. Maybe if uh, Duncan and I volunteer to take a 30% pay cut in the next month's salary, uh, we could get Gary to come on uh, with us. Um, and his nomination is down to his, uh, well, consistently not blaming Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for anything that's gone wrong at Manchester United, uh, as I'm sure you're all familiar with. Uh, third, and certainly not last uh, in this particular lineup, is uh, Daniel Levy Leverage, who, of course, announced this week on the same day that he had received um, a massive bonus for a stadium that was delivered late and half a billion pounds over budget, as well as a massive salary that he was furloughing all non-playing staff to the government's um, job retention scheme. Jim, uh, sorry, Duncan, uh, can you please give us your winner? Well, I'm glad to say that the uh, the golden envelopes haven't been used as a as a toilet roll substitute in the McGarry household as yet. I'll, 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 let, you know when, I'll let you know when that happens, although I won't send pictures. <laughs> Please don't. Um, I, I think we uh, Jurgen Klopp, good case for this one. Gary Neville, good case, but they both they both won um, plenty of these before, and uh, and there is obviously a clear winner this week. It has to be Daniel Levy for um, for having the temerity to use taxpayers' money to pay wages that his club are eminently capable of paying at least for a reasonable length of time. Um, of their uh, non-footballing staff, and uh, and I think he's caused not just Tottenham Hotspur um, a lot of problems. I think he's caused the entire Premier League and its players problems by uh, by making that move last week. So this one goes to Daniel Leverage. Sensational, Daniel. We will send the golden donkey uh, to your home as usual. We've got the address. Um, please just don't be selling it on. You know. Uh, we see these things on eBay quite regularly. Uh, we know uh, who's been doing it. So uh, that's it for this week's Transfer Window podcast. We indeed hope that we have kept you informed more than anything else, as well as, of course, entertained and um, given you more things to debate uh, with you and your mates. And please do continue that with us on our social media channels. We are at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. Duncan is at Duncan Castles on Twitter. I am at Garbo SJ 
on Twitter. Uh, We'll be very happy to receive any more questions, points of debate, etc. over the weekend. Until next week, when we will return with the next Transfer Window podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening. Yeah.